Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Top 5 DEI, the premier podcast for and about DEI professionals. I'm your host, Jason Lambert, a.k.a. Dr. J. And my goal is to interview every person in the world who manages, practices, teaches, researches, or publishes anything related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm so glad you tuned in. And if you are ready to learn about some insightful DEI practices from experts from all over the world, and about DEI experiences from people just like you. Join me and let's dive right in. And let's dive right in. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another episode of Top 5 DEI, the premier podcast for professionals in the diversity, equity, inclusion space. I'm your host, Dr. J. And I have a, a special guest. And I know I always say all my guests are special, and that's because they really are. This guest today, I've known for many years. I didn't tell him this before we started, because behind the scenes, but you know, I don't know if he, he recalls, but usually when I see him in conferences, I still call him Mr. President sometimes. I didn't do it today, but anyway. So I call him Mr. President, and I'll tell you why later on. But our guest, Joseph Scott Gladstone, PhD and also master's in public health, Dr. Gladstone is an associate professor of management at Washington State University's Everett campus. His research explores culturally relevant management education, notably the intersection of Western-influenced management science and Native American and indigenous peoples' cultures. His research is discovering and developing management education strategies utilizing cooperative extension services. Dr. Gladstone's international work explores transplantar wisdom, a foundational Native American and indigenous philosophy, and its influences on organization management, efficiency, and ethics. His work is published in Academy of Management Learning and Education, Leadership, the Journal of Management Education, American Indian Quarterly, and American Indian Culture and Research Journal, as well as other journals and numerous book, book chapters. He's a co-editor of American Indian Business, Principles and Practice, published by University of Washington Press, and it's the first and only general management text of its kind serving the U.S. market. Dr. Gladstone founded the Native and Indigenous Peoples Caucus in the Academy of Management, and the NAIPC today represents a global cadre of scholars promoting and advocating for Native and Indigenous management epistemology as equal to current dominant Western-influenced management thought. He is a founding member of Nabzwazai. Nabzwazai, oh, I was practicing this. I was practicing this. The Native American Business Scholars Working Group. We're going to have to edit that out, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and he is the past president of the PhD Project Management Doctoral Students Association. And as you know, I still call him Mr. President sometimes when I see him and serves as one of their faculty advisors. Dr. Glassstone is an enrolled member of the Blackfeet Tribe of Montana and recognized Nez Perce, Idaho descendant. He is originally from his campus site in the U.S. Pacific Northwest while retaining a home in southern New Mexico. He earned his Ph.D. at New Mexico State University, where he studied management under David Boji and Native American philosophy under Gregory Cajete Tiwa and Don Pepion Picani. He holds a Master of Public Health degree in Community Health Education and Promotion from the University of Arizona, where he focused on tribal health program 
management issues. Help me welcome Dr. Gladstone to our show. Hey, Dr. Hey, Joe, how's it going? <laughs> Mr. President. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, do, could you do me a huge favor? Uh, the founding member of, because it deserves the proper pronunciation. And I apologize for screwing that up. Napswase. Napswase. Wonderful. Napswase. And uh, would you mind explaining to them why the acronym Napswase is a little bit different from what it stands for, the Native American Business Scholars Working Group? It's a marketing term. <laughs> it's a marketing term. <laughs> got it. I got, I just, got it. I understand. So thank you for coming. Our, I'm sure our students would be glad to, to, to hear your, your journey, your experiences. And we're going to, as for those who are new to the show, guests are asked to submit five questions or we give them a list of five questions they can, they can choose from. And they have a sixth question where they give us or they're asked about their top five preferences or favorites, which is the fun part of the show that we leave for the end. We ask that question because we feel it's important in the spirit of inclusion and diversity because all of our different perspectives, our, our favorites, our preferences, they all matter. It's what makes us unique. So I'm going to jump right into the first question, Mr. President. <laughs> How did you get into the DEI field, diversity, equity, inclusion field, and tell us your journey? All right. Well, actually, before I answer that question, I do have to embrace some traditional Native American protocol. And that is, okay, I come speaking to you from down here in southern New Mexico, which is the Tiwa country. So I'd like to acknowledge the land that I'm coming from and the history of that land with the Native people and respect their elders and their history and that the influences that they have in the work. Okay. Okay. So. That protocol out of the way. Could you repeat the question, please? No problem. Thank you for that. How did you get into the DEI field intelligent journey? I I didn't even know it was called the DEI field, actually, to be honest <laughs> with you. It's, thank you for that wonderful introduction that you gave for me. A lot of my work and my academic work today is influenced by my work in public health. And what I did in that work was, at that time, my goal was to improve the health and welfare of Native American people. I had worked for a number of tribes in the Pacific Northwest and in the desert Southwest. And in that time that I was working, I, you know, public health people are taught to recognize demographics and these things, factors of health. And one of them for Native American people and a lot of minority communities, actually, is economics. And, you know, you'll read the journey, the journeys, you'll read the journeys and the journals will say that American Indian people are poor and they have diabetes. And we really started, we need to do something about that diabetes. And other journals will say American Indian people are poor and they have heart disease and we should do something about the heart disease. And so the the thinking of public health was recognizing that being poor is a factor for all these health and social problems that exist. And just the way I thought is like, why don't we do something about the poor part? And that's the work that actually inspired me to get a PhD in business. 
because I get, was very interested in working on that poor part. And there's two ways you can look at it. One is through economic development. And if we can build up the economies of these communities, we can you know, empower them, give them economic sovereignty, and they can start getting themselves from being on poor and then enjoy the benefits that people with strong economies enjoy. There's a group that already looks at the economic side. And what I noticed missing was it's one thing to know the science of economics, but you still need to train people to implement those economic ideas. And that's the business people. And so my interest went down the business scholarship area. And this is the reason why I'm a business professor. I, in the long run, I exist to help the Native and other communities learn the business skills necessary to create successful organizations that then, you know, execute those economic ideas. You, you, can, have, you can have an economy, but you can't have an economy without functioning organizations. And then additionally, you know, social services still needs good managers because you have limited funds and you want to get the best bang for your buck. And so you, we need people who, can, who know how to think strategically and how to lead others to get them to perform work. Think about strategies on how we can gain more resources, gain more money. When I ran a tribal health program in diabetes, my competition is thought differently. The competition I had were all the behaviors that lead people to diabetes. But as a strategist, you have to think about what resources do I have besides just the education knowledge? What resources do I have within my organization to combat those factors that lead to these behaviors? And so that, that was the original purpose of my, bus my business studies was to run the organizations. It was through my experience of being a business professor, though, that I got exposed to diversity through the business context. And there is a great need for much more diverse business academics. And that's how I actually stumbled across the PhD project. The, at the time when I decided to pursue my PhD, there were, as far as I knew, maybe only one or two American Indian business professors in the entire United States at the time. And so that, that definitely showed there was a great need to develop more business professors so that the students, could, yeah, American Indian students would be more inclined to want to go to business school if they saw people that were like them, which is the whole premise of the PhD project. You know, we exist to diversify the business professorate, diversify business faculty so that minorities from these communities that need their own economic development can come to school and learn from people who look like them and not just look like them, think like them and have those experiences. And through that, you know, they'll stay in business school and graduate and then get back to the communities and build those economies. And through that, improve health and welfare and other issues that are tied with that. So that's how I got tied up in the diversity equity area. It's kind of a roundabout way of uh, uh, doing things. I guess you can almost say it was you know, divine intervention in a way as well. Wow, that's that's interesting. I, I, I never knew that. That's, that's an interesting journey, how you started in public health and you connected those dots to see <laughs> how public health is impacted by economics, right? And, 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 yes. and, and so, and then you said, hey, you know what? I can go to the source or build a bridge between economics and health in order to have a stronger impact. That's a very interesting journey. 
What is the project that you are working on or have worked on that you would like to share with us and tell us about it? Man, I try to ask a professor what project they're working on and want to share. It's like asking me, which is my favorite kid out of my family? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. yeah. So I... <laughs> I've always been kind of one of these shiny object people. I guess people will say, well, you might have ADHD. And I just like to say, well, maybe shiny objects, you know, some new thing pops up and I go after it, but everything's connected. I'm a, I, we're talking in our talk before we started, as I mentioned, I'm an institutionalist. I'm an institutional type person. And I look at these institutions, but the thing that I look at institutions are actually systems and everything Everything's tied into a system. That's just my academic philosophy, my ontology, epistemology, all that is everything is a system. Everything is interconnected. And so I have multiple projects that kind of lead to the same thing, all towards that idea of you know, educating people so that they become very efficient business and organization managers and leaders in that area. And my, my overall project that I run is actually called SWAMP. That, and we we're talking acronyms earlier. It's S W O M P Swamp, and Swamp is strategic work on multiple projects, and that's my guy. <laughs> but actually, the so the things I looked at that I work on with under Swamp, there's area, the predominant one I'm working on right now, and I'm really focused in on the moment is the concept of identity. I really have been recently getting into the concept of identity, identity theory. With identity being that individual person, as it goes into this, it ties to a Native American way of thinking that I learned from the elders when I was younger. And the questions, I call them the questions that are asked. And they are, you know, what, who are you? And if when you're asked, who are you? It's not just your name, but deeply, very introspective self-reflection. You got to figure out who am I? Just what am I like as a person? This fits perfectly a person job fit. I'm a person who happens to enjoy having summers off and I like being an academic that fits very well. But who am I? Who am I as this person? What have I done in my life? And that's the second question is, where have you been? So one, who are you? Actually, I'm sorry, a little bit out of order. Who are you? Where are you from? And then where have you been? And then where are you going? And then the final mm. question asks, is that where you want to go? So it's a lot of self-reflection, but those are all tied to the concept of identity. It, it forces a person to think about who I am as a person, where do I fit in a greater society? How do I function within that society? And what am I gonna to do to contribute to that society? And so this idea of identity has been really interesting for me. The project that I'm doing that's related to that is uh, looking at American Indian academics at the university level. And we're uh, a colleague of mine who is a Maori down in, down in New Zealand. New Zealand. Uh, he and I are, yep, he's, he's you know, Maori, an indigenous person out of Maori. The, the project that we started looking at, he came up as a Fulbright, and his name is Tyron Love. I should give him a shout out, Tyron. We're, we're looking at the American Indian academics specifically. And right now it's still an early stage. We're looking at those up in the Pacific Northwest. And what we're asking them is how do you as an academic navigate through the academic system? What inspired you? Just like I introduced you earlier, what got me into being a business professor? And we asked that same question. What got you into being a business professor? What resources did you have to get to become a professor? 
And how do you navigate this career? And we're asking early career professors and we're asking late career professors. And we're discovering where their identity as a Native person fits within their role, their identity as being a university academic. So it's been a pretty, pretty fun project so far in that. And so that's what we've been working on. So that's my, that's my one big current project that I've really been dedicating a lot of time to lately. Oh, and wow. Then, uh, another project is yeah, the indigenous philosophy and a thing that I call translator wisdom, which we can do a little bit later when you're ready. No, no, talk talk to us about it. No, that's fine. We, we, we're good on time. We're good on time. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, let's get to translation. Because I was because I because I wanted to learn what when we were talking before when you mentioned it. This that sounded very interesting. Please share. Yeah. Wisdom actually was an idea I I came up with when I was a I was actually a post bachelor's level employee working for a tribe up at the Pacific Northwest and realized that there's this thing in the American Indian wellness movement, and you see a lot of it in Native American people, and it's called the medicine wheel. And fortunately, this being an audio thing, I'll do my best to tell a story about what the medicine wheel looks like. But what you do is you have a round circle, and that circle is split into four quadrants. And each of those quadrants, you know, you have axes, your, your XY and your other axes. What is that other one called? You can tell I'm a qualitative researcher. Right? Yeah, X axis, <laughs> I know, right? y axis. The X and the Y axis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. got it. So you have the X, you have your X axis, you have your Y axis, right? And then each of those quadrants in the wellness movement represents a an aspect of your individual wellness. And so one quadrant is your mental health, another one is your physical health, another is your spiritual health, and another one is your emotional health. And so when they use these medicine wheels. To try to get us in balance. You, know, you want those quadrants to be equal in those four quarters. What I had realized, though, when I was working in this, that you can kind of take the emotional and the mental health and kind of put those together. They're almost the same thing, emotional and mental health, because the, what was missing was a concept called social wellness. You have to get along with other people. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important for us to have that social health. So that's the first thing I saw in the medicine wheel. The next thing I realized, though, is that the medicine wheel, when it was being taught back in the days, and is still taught this way a lot, amongst a lot of people, is that they always see those four quadrants as quadrants, and they're independent. They don't like if I'm if I'm kind of you know out, my my physical health is out of balance. I always think of it as a like a car tire. If you have a car tire and it's in balance, you got everything even. You can drive easily. You can drive smoothly. You have control. But if the tire gets out of balance, your car kind of wiggles down the road and you have a hard time, it pulls to the right, pulls to the left. And as I used to say back in the days, if it's really out of balance, it'll pull you into the ditch of despair. And then you get a flat and you're not going anywhere. You're not even around. And though that's how I saw the medicine wheel back in these days was it was a way to kind of represent balance. As time evolved, I realized that it spins. This is why I call it a dynamic medicine wheel. When it spins just like a tire. And at the center of that, that spinning is the hub, and that hub is us. So all of these aspects of wellness rotate around us. And just like any tire, if you were to take a bicycle tire and you held it in front of you, you could see the valve stand where the air goes in. Mm -hmm. And when it's not moving, it's easy to pick it out. But if I gave that tire a really fast spin, you'll notice that valve stem kind of disappears. It's still there, but you don't know specifically where it's at. Each of those individual spokes kind of disappear, 
you know they're there, but you don't know exactly. So it all ends up blending into one aspect. And so that's kind of the beginning of the transplanter wisdom thinking. Wow. American, American Indian philosophy exists in three different planes. And one plane is the temporal plane, or what I call temporality. And Native American people don't see time as linear in a way. Actually, it's kind of linear, but it kind of loops back on itself. And it's not a true circle. Some people say it's round, but it's not a true circle. It's kind of twisty and bendy. It's, it goes, when you think about the planes, we're talking about X and Y axes. There's actually a Z axis. So now we're talking a three-dimensional plane of this, mm -hmm. of this time. So time can go in multiple directions, it bends back on itself. So we, this means that there is no concept of past, present, or future. It's just now. Everything exists in this moment. It's just a very broad moment. And so when you hear stories about Native American people talking about the seven generations, we're always thinking about elders or thinking about our past. We tell stories about our past. Because for us, that doesn't mean that this happened. And sure, it did happen, but it's as real to us today as it was back then. It's, you know, it's, just not, it's just not a record that we reference back to. It's part of us today that existed in this moment as far as we're concerned. This also goes wow. to the concept of seven generations ahead. These people are people who exist. We, have not, we just not yet have met them or not yet met them, have yet them. But anyways, they're there. We just haven't met them in person yet. And they'll eventually come. And therefore, that means that when we make our planning, we plan knowing that it's their turns coming up next and we need to respect their turn. So I have everything ready for them when their turn comes up. And so that's uh -huh. a concept of temporality. The next plane in transplanter wisdom is called animacy. And animacy means that everything has a spirit. Everything is alive. There's no inanimate object. Of course, you know, we get to think about the animals, you know, they breathe and they look at us, the dog, you know, hits me up for food every day, right? But not just the dog, but you can think of the trees and the rocks and everything has a spirit. And if we treat everything that is animate and with a spirit, that means we treat it like another living, breathing entity that, disturb, that deserves the same respect that we expect of each other. And so that's the second plane of transplanter wisdom. And then the third plane is place. And our world exists in the place that we exist within. If you talk to Native people and you hear the saying called indigenous ways of knowing, indigenous ways of knowing is you know, what the original indigenous people knew about the land they existed on. For example, there's a, this big mountain slide up in Alberta that's called the Frank Slide. And the settlers from the, from the east when they came in, they built a town under this big hill that all the tribal people said, don't build, don't go under there. That's, that mountain is alive, the, the NMC aspect, right? And that mountain's alive, and it likes to jump up every now and then. But everyone kind of ignored it. They built a mine in it, and the Frank slide came down and buried the town, or at least half the town. And wow. of course, you know, the Blackfeet people were like saying, told you so. Yeah. And so <laughs> that, the concept of place, and there's, I can't, I, I'm embarrassed to admit, I can't remember these tribes that were in the Pacific Islands. And they have these legends, these, these le legendary stories that said when the water goes out, 
you run to the hill. And no one really paid attention until one day when the waters went out the sea for a no, you know, the tide just went out, out out of schedule, no explained reason. And all the tourists who worked from there went down and they're looking at this, you know, where did the water go? But all the locals took off up into the hills. Then what comes in? A huge tsunami, a tsunami, a huge tsunami came in and killed a lot of people. But that's indigenous ways of knowing. And so you get those indigenous ways of knowing by knowing the place that you live within. And so transplanter wisdom means that our wisdom is drawn from our idea of time, it's drawn from our idea of animacy, and our wisdom is drawn from our idea of place. And so that's transplanter wisdom. Wow, that is very interesting. Thank you for sharing. That, that is so thought-provoking. You talk about in one of your papers, you interviewed Native American business leaders. And they, and I, re, I recall excerpts from the interviews where they talked a lot about seven generations and things like that. And, and I love talking to you now. It kind of really helps me better understand this idea of, it's kind of like, you know, when we look at time, animacy and space, like there is no space and time. The idea that what we're doing now, I mean, I'm just repeating what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, but yeah. it's like this whole space, really nothing changes, but really things don't change and we have to keep things, either preserve it or put it in, in perspective so that those who come after are able to be in a position where they can, I guess, enjoy, you know, the, the, enjoy what we're enjoying right now when you think right. about it. I mean, and it just, it just makes so much sense to me. And, and I like the, the story you told about the jumping mountain and about the water, because this is like shared stories so that from the past, so that those in the present know and continue to share that so that those who come yeah. after us will also yeah. know as well. Yeah. Otherwise that can get lost. And that, that information is so important to, to maintain and preserve. Right. Correct. I am going to, I do have to add, you mentioned that things yes. don't change. Actually things change all the time. And that's mm, the other thing okay. that we recognize that things are, mm. and so native people are very flexible. We're very adaptable. We have to be adaptable because one day there could be the mountain is there. Next day, the mountain's gone. And or one day the buffalo are all there, there, you know, for reasons beyond our control, the buffalo are gone. The land was once ours and, you know, these colonial powers come in and put us in these other spots. So how do we persevere? You know, how do we sustain our sustain ourselves we have to be able to adapt if you can't adapt you know this is going to be classic darwinism right it's evolution and mm. evolving our knowledge evolving our understanding of things and that's why we're professors by the way yeah that's you know professors you know we we explore and we learn these things so that we learn how we can adapt to things that change so that it doesn't suddenly punch us in the face you know we we can see these things coming we see the environment changing, we see the economies changing, all these things. And if we pay attention to them, we'll be able to adapt to those. If we fight that adaptation or we fight those changes, we don't exist. We stop existing. Therefore, we have to adapt. So Got it. That, that's really, yeah. And then the, to add on the concept of place, and this is something I teach you know, to all, all my students and all those listening here, travel. Because your place, you only know the place if you live in if you stay in the same town and never go anywhere, you might know the world through TV, but just like the movie Goodwill Hunting, 
you know, tell me what the Sistine Chapel is like, and you can describe it, describe that, describe that ceiling. But if I ask you, what does the Sistine Chapel smell like? You can't tell me because you weren't there. And mm -hmm. so you want, you know, you want your place. It's very important for your place to be as broad as possible, because the more broad it is, that more information you have to inform, you know, form your own wisdom. Wow. Interesting. Thank you. Mr. President, <laughs> yes, Dr. Joe, how do you define diversity, equity, and inclusion? What do those terms mean to you? It's for me, it's, yeah, I'm an academic. And so, you know, for me being an academic, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so my, my idea of thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion is all about knowledge and how we think. We want to be able to have diversity in our thought, to be able to be open-minded and get these other ideas in and see the value of those ideas. And that's, again, part of that transplanter wisdom. You, you look at these multiple planes because these are these multiple sources of information that you have. And the more, and don't even just think about the planes in pure linear X, Y, and Z axis, or to be totally diverse, X, Y, and Z, to respect beyond my colleagues that are in Canada and elsewhere who use that Z, the, you want to think about it in three-dimensional. So I talked earlier about that dynamic medicine wheel. And if you're imagining that wheel, you're probably thinking it in spinning, but only like a bike tire or a car tire, you're only thinking it spinning in one direction in that X, Y, you know, in that one plane. But you also have to think about it spinning in a three dimension. So you want to think of it more like an, an atom, an atomic shell. You're the nucleus and you have all, I think they're called the protons or electrons, electrons spin around you. And, the, and so think of it more like a three-dimensional fuzzy ball. Because you have to connect. How do you connect three planes together at once? You got to spin in those three different planes. And so hmm. when you're looking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, you have to think about all of these multiple planes coming in and influencing your wisdom, influencing your knowledge. And that influences your identity. And so for me as an academic and being a Native American academic, I am working, this is why we, you know, the project we have talking to the other academics, and we're not just looking at business people, we're looking at people who are sociology, education, political science, natural resource sciences. We're asking them, you know, what does, you know, being a Native person, being a Native academic mean to you? And then what do you do for your, for your discipline? And so as Native people, you know, it's our goal, as I see it. And, you know, some of the people I've talked to, as they see it themselves, is to get out that Indigenous identity, get out the Indigenous wisdom for the greater academy to see as valuable and important and not just, you know, not just a, another source of information, but an equally valid way of knowing as Western thought is. And so that's where I see diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's diversity of thought. It's seeing the Seen that kind of egalitarian wise, it's equally good as Western thinking. And then to bring that in, not just out of trivial, oh, that's very interesting, nice to talk about, but you guys say something that's really valuable that's going to help me with my own work. And mm -hmm. Maslow, we all know about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Mm -hmm. He was actually informed on the social aspect of those, of those needs through his work with the Blackfeet tribe up in Canada. He saw how the Blackbeat culture and Blackbeat community worked amongst each other. And he realized, you have social needs. 
And so that's that, you know, this indigenous way of knowing about everything being animate, everything have a spirit, everything being equal. And that informed his work for his, his Maslow's wow. hierarchy of needs. And so those, that's how I see diversity, equity, and inclusion. Wow. That's amazing. Man, that's, I'm, I'm, that's why I'm glad I, I have guests like you. I learn something every time when I do these interviews. Wow, that, that's interesting. Didn't I know that? Huh. What would you say is the most important tool, tool in your toolkit? What is consistently effective and makes an impact? I was pondering that question. I try to think when you have a toolkit. So I have I have a I have multiple toolkits. And mind you, when my when my car breaks down, my toolkit is called the garage. I just I don't even <laughs> I, I open up the hood and that's like, yeah, no, I there's people I pay. Right, right. that's a form of toolkit and that's being Mm -hmm. very strategic and identifying Mm. your resources so one of your toolkits that you can have is having a network knowing people connecting with people and you know just drawing on all these people's multiple talents as we were talking earlier about being a manager managers are the people when it comes to finance don't ask me to ask about the nuances of finance but i do know finance well enough that i need a finance professional when I need to do something about finance and accounting. And so that's you, that that kind of you, one of the things you have to think about having a toolkit is having a broad network of people. So that's one. Mm-hmm. And then when my bike, I can fix my bike. And so I have a specific tool bag and that tool bag is just my bike tools. So I don't mix it with my other tools because I like my bikes, now I keep that. And so when I have my bike tools and those tools I can use. And then there's the other toolkit that, it's supposed to be a big red box and have all these tools, but nothing's in there. It's a total mess. But I seem like, yeah, it seems like socket wrenches seem to be about my best tools. So then in my work, you know, mm-hmm. what's my most important tool? It depends on what you want me to, you know, a tool for what? What is the problem that I'm addressing that I need to pull that tool out for? And so that's a that's a challenging question to ask. But so I'm gonna pick what I'm gonna do then and I'm gonna go right back. I think my greatest tool that I have in the work I do is a broad network people. And it's probably one of the most important tools that anybody can have. Don't work alone. Of course, there are times when I do want to work alone and do my own thing. It's just, you know, part of that identity. I know that's who I am. I also know that it's a weakness of mine. And therefore I have to work hard to make sure that I work with other people and that I draw on as many people, especially if your overall arcing project is called Swamp. When you have multiple projects, you need to have broad networks to work across those people. And so, yeah, it's just my ability, you know, my greatest tools, my ability to network and connect people together. And there's been work where I, you know, I've introduced this person to another person. I've never seen them together. Yeah. You know, well, I've never worked with them again, but they end up doing work together. Yeah. I've connected I... people together, but they've done work that's been very important that I find valuable. And so networking, I guess, would be my tool. Right. Yeah. I wish I had learned that when I was younger. It took me a long time to understand the importance and value of a network. And I agree with mm-hmm. you. It's a, it's a very, very powerful tool. You know, you may not realize this, but I'm an introvert, but you know, but once I get to know people, then it's easier for me to like come out of my shell. I've never been good with small talk and things like that. But once I realized that, Hey, just you know, you have to, you have to network. You need people to help you. I remember when I first started my academic journey, I was, 
you try to do so author publications. <laughs> and it's like, that doesn't work, right? I mean, we need, and then, and then you get siloed in your thinking too. And then right. when you begin to network, you realize that, oh, all these ideas I have, they're so much better now because these multiple perspectives come. And it took me a long time to realize that. But once I did, I began to see a lot more, you know, progress in, you know, improvement in my writing and my consulting training, all those different things. But, but I'm sure, but you figured that out early on. Cause I mean, that's why we elected you president of our cohort. Cause early on you were just always, you know, reaching out <laughs> to people, you know, which, which is one about you. This, this next question, I'm very interested in, in hearing your answer because, you know, I just, I want to learn is it is common today to do native American land acknowledgements. What are your thoughts on this? I have my thoughts and Native American colleagues have their thoughts and I believe both sides. And land acknowledgements, you're starting to see them a lot. And the thing is, is that if you understand why a land acknowledgement is being done and you respect and have it, you know, it's, again, it goes to transplant, right? If you're, a lot of people are doing land acknowledgements, but they're kind of just becoming rote, routine, nothing really meaningful about it. And so if a land acknowledgement is being read simply because it's, we have to do it, then that kind of, I'm going to say, it galls me. You know, it's like, you know, it's, and even as Native people, I'm starting to see, some, you know, a couple of Native people just kind of go through it without really expressing that emotion. For me, when I do, when I do a land acknowledgement, I, you know, it's, it's to acknowledge the land. Dude, you know, these people are here before us. It's that, again, transplaner. These people existed yeah. before us and their spirits are still here and they are the seven generations behind us and their own generations of the local land they're gonna they're on right now they'll show up too and therefore when you do a land acknowledgement recognize that that's why you're acknowledging it recognize that this is these people's lands and they're tied to this place and we you know we're on it we're occupying uh, occupying it they may not be happy about it they're very likely not happy about it. And even, you know, you don't have to outright say it, but if you keep that in mind when you read those things, good. And it's, it's much more meaningful on that. And so, of course, you know, like, you know, I think all land acknowledgements today should include the phrase, give it back, because that's really what we want is, you know, to, to have the return of the land, but that's not going to happen. Therefore, just at least, you know, the land acknowledgements are very important, very meaningful. And as, and as part of the translator, the animacy part and the temporal part and place, all three of them, if you recognize those things when you come across the land acknowledgement and in and, and deep sincerity, give honor to those people and thank them for you know, preparing that land for you, even though it was probably taken for them, they left their spirits there and you know, embraced those spirits with them. So that's how I think about the land acknowledgements. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. You know, it's interesting. I was reading somewhere about how sometimes I think people, they might even have good intentions, but they might misidentify the peoples who were on that land or they do it in, I guess, forgive me if I'm saying this wrong, like quote unquote, a non-traditional ways and things like, mm -hmm. and in a way that could, could, that could actually be either dismissive or... Mm -hmm. Of, of, of Native American cultures and what have you. Do you know, and this is a follow-up question. So mm -hmm. uh, are there resources or what, what, if people really 
sincerely want to perform land acknowledgements and they don't know where to turn because you're right, we're seeing it in a lot of different places and especially on university campuses mm -hmm. uh, that I've been on. How would people go about making sure they do it the, 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 the right way? That's, I mean, that's the challenge. That's also part of diversity, actually, when it's about Native American people. Or is it uh, the right way? Yeah, that's exactly where I'm going. Mm. They're really, everything is place, place-based. Mm. Somebody once asked me, it was one of my students when I was teaching on the East Coast. She asked me, what did my tribe think about the tribes of the East Coast? Well, wait, you know, back before colonialism. And I tell her, we didn't even know they existed. I mean, we didn't have mass communication there, you know. So what did we think of them? We knew there were people back there. We had no idea what they were like. Because, you know, you, you, how do you get around on foot, you know, 3,000 miles? You know, it's not that easy, correct? And so yeah. when, you, when you think about that, then when you're on a place, the best source of information is try to find those people who were originally from that place. The best person to do a land acknowledgement is somebody, you know, who not only is descended from that place, but is still tied to that place spiritually. And those right. are the best people. And then, you know, to do the acknowledgement, you know, the, just let them, you know, it's almost like a prayer. You know, we, 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 we put food before ourselves and we say grace. What is the proper way to say grace? Give thanks, right? That is the best right. way to say grace. So how do you, what's the best way to do a land acknowledgement? Give thanks. Thank you for, you know, being here and, you know, thinking about us. And we'll do our best to think about you and not, you know, harm the land any further. And so those are, you know, pretty much, and then whatever words you want to add to make it sound eloquent. That's your speaking style. Okay. Great. Well, did I answer your question there? No, yeah, yes, you did. You okay. did. That was very helpful. See, we have, I think we got about, maybe about 10 minutes left. Yeah. We want to allow time for questions from the audience. So, but fortunately we are at the fun part. I mean, the whole conversation was fun. Yes, <laughs> Thanks. And, and very this. and very insightful and forming. But drum roll, brrr, we have the top five question. And it is, you wanted me to ask you, who are your top five actors or actresses and why? All right. <laughs> you know, I you're a guy who watches, you know, looks at IMDB while watching a movie, and you would think that I would know. My top five actors and actresses. <laughs> Let's see. Well, I'm going to do them um, not in not in hierarchical order. So I'll do mm -hmm. them in number one. Well, not number just one on the list, but not, not mm -hmm. one overall. Well, would be Bruce Willis, Corbin Dallas from the movie, and I think that's Bruce Willis, and that that great Christmas classic about the tower thing. Die Hard. Die Hard. Yeah, the good <laughs> Christmas classic. Die Hard, Seek Chochu. So yeah, I like, he, he, he seems to be in a lot of movies I enjoy. And have I gone out of my way to see a movie specifically with him in it? No, it just happens to be coincidentally in a lot of movies I like. So yeah, so Bruce Willis. Why? He just, but he played Corbin Dallas and Corbin Dallas is like, Corbin Dallas, that's just. Yeah. <laughs> Jodie Foster seems to be in a lot of movies I enjoy. Oh, uh, Jodie Foster. Right. Yeah. Oh. And her is more of the talent. When she performs a role, she's like, yeah, she's performing. You know, she is acting and she's totally like, yeah, I've, you know, she, she does movies I really like from Silence of the Lambs to the Time Traveling Lady. Of course, I yeah, like time travel, right? Yeah. And so, 
And then, and yeah, she does. So Jody Foster. She and has then, a uh, wide range, a lot of range. Yeah, that's the word, range. Mm-hmm. And then I had a really hard time thinking of number, let's say I was one and two. I sit in there and pondering, it's like number three and four. Matthew Bodine was a guy I went out of the way to watch a long time ago. He hasn't done anything lately, but back in the day, Matthew Modine, I liked his, the, the characters he portrayed, just kind of a, I'm going to say, kind of like a young me, kind of a little arrogant and pompous sort of stuff. I like that. It was kind of fun. Yeah, I saw myself with him. Matthew and Bodine. Then, I know the name. Matthew I can't Modine. Face yeah. right now. Yeah, hmm. long, narrow face guy. He, one of my favorite movies he was in was about some student. He was a medical student, you know, tr- that, like a, First year medical student trying to get through uh, the challenges of being uh, another one. Another movie that was actually uh, filmed in Spokane, Washington called Vision Quest. And he was this uh, wrestler trying to, you know, he was, he thought he was part Indian as well. And it wasn't even that. I just like the way Matthew Modine did his work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's see. That. And then, so I go to three and now I need a number four. We have been liking the, and Mount, Mount, the guy who's right now playing the lead character in the current Star Trek series. About he's playing Commander Pike in the current uh, Ashton the current, Mount, I think is his name. Yeah. Yes, I can't remember his name, but I know who you're talking about. It wasn't yeah. he was he was also in was he a Braveheart? He was one of the he was one of the I have no idea. I only I, like I, that character that he's playing yeah, Pike okay. very well. I, I know his face. Yeah. yeah. Oh so, yeah, me so, too. I, yeah, and I'm I like going the new one too. right now. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then the last one, of course, is Lily Gladstone. She's you know. So you got a lot of rave reviews at Con Pan, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. for a movie that she filmed there in Oklahoma with De Niro and Bobby and Marty Scorsese directed it. And so the Killers of the Flower Moon. Mm-hmm. That's the name of it. Yeah. And, yeah. and why is she my favorite? Well, she's my niece, you know? So yeah, of course. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so since so really you, you mentioned it last because you saved the best for last, right? Because of course, yes. <laughs> yes. So, yes, and she's actually she is she's a she's a incredible talent. We've been watching her since she was a little kid. She's always been a ham. Well, she started out as a ham. Now she's you know. Uh, now she gets paid to be a ham. <laughs> you know, she gets paid to act. To act, you're right. Well, to act, yeah. yeah. I'm a ham. That's, gotta, that's awesome. You, yeah, I but mean, you gotta, have, you gotta have that confidence up in you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you're a professor <laughs> up there in front of students, how are you going to teach? You got to act. So that's that's uh, that's true. That's true. You got to put on the show, otherwise, it fall asleep on you. People don't realize yeah. that, you know. I mean, at least, yeah. at least I try to. I try to make it entertaining. I think, you know. Yeah, yeah. I like that top five. That's a great top five. And we have we have time for questions. So we have about maybe five, six minutes left. Maybe we can get one or two questions in. So if there's anyone listening who has a question, you can do it two ways. Now's the time where you can unmute your microphone and ask the question. You can also unmute your video if you want to, or you can type it in the chat and we can read it from there. Yeah, and feel free to ask me anything you want. If I don't know an answer, I'm just going to make one up. So don't worry about that. <laughs> Well, it's been a pleasure. My name is Donna Scott. It's been a pleasure to uh, have this discussion. And I want to go back to where you discussed the DEI as it related to an atomic shell and Uh sort of us being the nucleus and stating that it influenced your, it influenced your wisdom. It influenced Mm -hmm. your identity, creating a greater identity. 
And so what I'd like to know from you or hear from you is how does that equate or bring about equality among the classes or acceptance? I'm just kind of curious as how all that plays into that. Yeah. So like I said, ask me anything you want. If I don't know the answer, I'm going to make one up. So no, I'm not going to make this one up. The So how's it deal with equality? That's kind of where I was talking about earlier in identity. Who are you as a person? And so, you know, you're Donna and you ask yourself, you know, well, what am I going to do for equality? How am I going to assert myself? If I see problems with inequality, what am I going to do to correct that inequality? How much courage do I have on it? Do I still need to learn more things? Do I need to develop skills? Again, as a business professor, we teach leadership. And so what do I learn about myself as a leader to lead people towards being, you know, to, to do e- equality movements? You know, if, we're, if we want to work on these inequalities, it's hard to get other people to do work until somebody takes charge and motivates those people to do that work. And so, I, you know, I guess to answer the question, you know, what is it to deal with inequalities? It's going it, to take time, but it's going to take, not to sound trite, one person at a time, but finding that person who's going to motivate those other people collectively and keep them motivated, keep them energized, and keep them moving forward, even when they find conflict. As I mentioned earlier, Native people are very adaptable. We're very resilient. And so if you meet a challenge, you know, rather than snapping at it, you got to learn kind of flex and then come back forward and keep moving forward on that. So that's how I see that. Hopefully that answered your question. Yes, sir, it did. And in fact, it just, it was very thought provoking to, to put DEI with identity and then you turn it into leadership and training. So thank you. I appreciate that answer. I will use oh. that concept. Oh, you're welcome, Donna. I see that Cheryl asked us a question. Any plans for future goals? Well, actually, I got dinner coming up shortly after this is wrapped up. And so that's my immediate future goal. Future goals. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm one of these classic academics who worked in the real world uh, for a while before becoming a professor. And like a lot of PhD project professors, I started out late in my life. And so I'm actually, in terms of my future, where I'm going, is to, you know, my immediate big future goals is actually get a book published in this area on transplanter wisdom and make a lot of money on it and retire and travel the world. But in terms of my scholarship and work is to actually produce more more professors who understand this, this concept of transplanter wisdom, understand their identity as minority people and have the comfort and ability to be themselves in front of the classroom when they do teaching and have the comfort and the ability to be themselves when they do their research, to not surrender their identity to become what they think an, an academic should be, but to sustain their identity to be the best academic they know and, and be able to express how they see that world to their own eyes how they see that world through their community's eyes and make that knowledge just as valuable for academics in general. I'm just trying to just diffuse the classic diffusion of innovation theory, diffuse in their traditional, their local customs and knowledge and wisdom 
to the greater academic community so that the academic community finds that as valuable as stuff that comes out of the West. And hopefully that uh, answered your question there, Cheryl. Okay, thanks. Yeah, uh, Cheryl says, awesome. Thanks for sharing. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the question, Cheryl. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so we're gonna have to, are you gonna be at Academy of Management? Not this year. Um, Not this year. Um, yeah, I'm going up. There's a Indigenous Academic Academy of sorts going on up in Toronto. And oh, wow. I get X number of money for travel, and I'm putting it that way. My next Academy trip is actually when we'll go to Amsterdam. That's my planned Academy trip. Mm -hmm. a couple it of has weeks. to be fun. Yeah. yeah. But I will be going to Chicago. So for those who might be pondering, hmm, should I be a business professor? Uh, go to the PhD project annual uh, conference. Actually, no longer in November. It's now in March. If you're thinking about being a business professor, you'll sign up uh, for a PhD project. Come to our annual conference in Chicago, and we can tell you what it's like to be a professor. I'll be there. That's my thing. That's where I get my jollies. I get to meet you know, future students and help you decide if you know, being a professor is the right thing to do for you. Yeah, We can chat. Thank you so much, Mr. President. Dr. Joe. Dr. Oh, you never explained why I was president. Did I? Did I not? Okay. Well, you so for those, who, oh, so for those who don't know, well, we met, we met through the PhD project and we elected him in their different cohorts and we elected him as our president of our cohort. So, I mean, so from the very beginning, he's, he's been a, a, a servant leader helping others, making things happen, or organizing activities and programs. And, and you continue to do it even now for the next generation of, of professors, business professors. And so I thank you for that. And, but that's why I call it Mr. President. Never, you know, I'm, I'm a corny person. And so I'll, next time <laughs> I are. see you face to face, <laughs> I'm going to say, hey, Mr. President, again, you know, the joke will just always keep going with me or whatever. Yeah, but well, that's I, why. I, I thank you very much for this honor, Dr. Lambert, and it's been a pleasure and I you know, hope that everyone who's listening you know, gains something very valuable out of, out of our conversation together. And again, just like you learned from me, I learned from you as well today, so I appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm sure our listeners learned uh, a ton, just like I did. Thank you again for coming on our show. And right. to our listeners, remember you can check us out at Top 5 DEI. If you like what this content, you can please download, share, invite, anything, because we want to get this, this is some important information for everyone. Our goal is to interview all of the DEI professionals across the world, whether they're researchers, authors, academics, anything like that, and to elevate humanity. Enjoy your day. Peace out. Dr. Jay.